Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. By now, I'm sure you've noticed that the end of the year is approaching fast, and it's time to start thinking about Christmas gifts for your family and friends. In fact, how come you haven't already? You're running out of time, you know. If you're also running out of ideas of what to buy for your siblings, your grandchildren, and the members of your garage band, don't feel too stressed out about it. I have a suggestion for you. Why not get them all some nice merch from the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop? I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom. Just imagine the smile on your granny's face when she opens her gift and finds a coffee mug with the message, Wake up early if you want another man's land or life. Or the pure joy rushing through your kids when they get a pack of Scandinavian History Podcast stickers in various colors. Not to mention your sister-in-law's face when she receives her t-shirt with the text, Speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Anyway, now let's get back to the show. Last time, we took a look at the life of Bridget Birgerstotter, or St. Bridget to you and me. She was a Swedish aristocrat who started to have heavenly visions after her husband's death and spent the last 20 years of her life in Rome, where she did what she could to improve the moral conduct of the representatives of the church, while trying to obtain approval for her very own religious order. In the end, she not only got her order, known as the Bridgetines, but she was also declared a saint, one of Scandinavia's few non-royal saints. This time, we'll talk about a phenomenon that's popped up in several of our episodes already, a phenomenon that had an impact on life in Scandinavia and Europe as a whole that hardly can be overstated. I refer, of course, to the Black Death, the Red Rooster, or simply the Plague. Episode 53, The Great Death. The plague had hit Europe on several occasions before, but the wave that engulfed the continent in the mid-14th century was something else. According to estimates calculated by people who are trained to do that sort of thing, Europe had roughly 18 million inhabitants before the plague. Of these, 26 to 40 million died between 1347 and 1352. That makes it the highest death toll ever in recorded history on the continent. We have plenty of descriptions of how the plague struck Europe in the mid-14th century, how it originated in the east and spread across the Mediterranean from Constantinople to Italy, and then northward through France and Germany, eventually reaching the northern edges of the continent. Documentation from Scandinavia is scant relative to many other parts of Europe, but the few sources we do have and the research conducted to discover the scope, indicate that Scandinavia was affected just as severely as the rest of Europe. We now know that the plague spread with the black rats, who carried fleas infected with the Yersinia pestis bacteria. The fleas would move from rats to humans, causing them to fall ill in a mysterious and enormously painful disease that in most cases would kill the patient within days. People acted according to the nature when someone fell ill or died. Unfortunately, that was the worst thing they could have done in this case, 
if they wanted to prevent the further spread of the plague. When people tried to treat the sick or rushed to their bedsides as they were dying, the disease spread from the sick and dying to the healthy. When someone died, the mourners gathered for the funeral presented even more targets for the fleas. The first people who got sick and died lived in port cities, which makes sense since the plague was most likely brought to Scandinavia via merchants engaged in foreign trade. The inhabitants of crowded and unsanitary cities and towns may have been the primary victims of the plague, but that doesn't mean that the peasants living in the countryside could avoid the disease. Evidence suggests that the plague reached even the most remote northern and mountainous regions of Scandinavia. Since medieval record-keeping was spotty at best, it's impossible to know exactly how many people died from the plague. One way of trying to estimate the number of victims is to count abandoned farms and fields. This makes a lot of sense, especially in Scandinavia where almost everyone lived off the land and where the towns and cities were small. Still, it's essentially guesswork, and different scholars use different methods, naturally leading to different results. It shouldn't surprise anyone. It also shouldn't surprise anyone that these different results have led to scholarly debate, and we'll get back to that in a bit. Because of the plague, the price of land, as well as the rents paid on land, dropped dramatically. And when I say dropped dramatically, I mean dramatically. In the mountainous regions of Jämtland on the border between Norway and Sweden, we have farms selling for 10% of their pre-plague price in the early 15th century, over 50 years after the plague had passed. Granted, that's an extreme example, but a 40-50% to 50% drop in land prices seemed to be standard throughout most of Scandinavia, or at least common enough not to stand out. We also see that the settlement expansion that had been constant in northern and eastern Scandinavia for several generations by the mid-14th century stopped almost completely, and it didn't resume for several decades, sometimes generations. Denmark was likely the first country in Scandinavia to be hit by the plague. As I've mentioned on numerous occasions already on this podcast, Denmark was the richest and most powerful of the Scandinavian countries in the Middle Ages. It was also the most populous. It's impossible to know exactly how many people lived in Denmark in the 1340s, but according to modern calculations, Denmark could have had as many as 1 million inhabitants before the plague. At the very least, there were some 750,000 Danes. Whatever the exact number was, the plague brought it down significantly. Also here, the estimates are frustratingly inexact but somewhere between one-third and half of the total population died from the plague in 1349 to 1350. Losing such a large part of the population in such a short time span was obviously a cataclysmic event for Denmark, quite beside the fact that it was an almost unimaginable catastrophe on the human level. The consequences for the realm were so grave that in 1354, King Valdemar Dawn even abolished the death penalty for a number of crimes and justified this with the need to repopulate the kingdom. Despite this decision, it would take centuries for the population to reach pre-plague levels again. We don't know for sure how and when the plague reached Denmark, but according to the traditional account, the plague is supposed to have arrived in the summer of 1349 on a ship from England. A ship with a Norwegian crew had set out from England on its way back to Norway, but someone had contracted the plague while in port, and on their way across the North Sea, everyone on board died from the plague. The ship then drifted around on the sea 
until it eventually was stranded on a beach in northwest Jutland. The Danish locals who discovered the ship were horrified to find the bloated and blackened corpses of the dead crew. Not horrified enough, however, to stop them from plundering everything of value on board. That way, the plague found its way into Denmark, and soon the disease spread like wildfire in the population of Jutland. From there, the plague spread up to the islands, and Zealand, the island where Copenhagen is located, seems to have been hardest hit in October that same year. There are no written systematic accounts of the spread of the plague in Denmark, but scholars have analysed donations to the church, usually done in connection to deaths, and have noticed a pattern of spikes in the number of donations in a way that they think suggests the progression of the plague throughout the country. In 1352, just after the plague had passed, the Bishop of Ribe in southwestern Jutland complained about the drop in income from agriculture and added that the situation wasn't likely to improve anytime soon. That makes a lot of sense. In his diocese, no fewer than 12 parishes ceased to exist altogether, and in some villages and towns, the whole population was apparently wiped out completely. All over Denmark, farms and fields were abandoned with no one to cultivate them and pay taxes or rents. Here we see a pattern emerge that repeats itself in other places in Scandinavia as well. The abandonment of farms and fields was most widespread on marginal lands, those areas where the land wasn't so fertile or land that had been settled relatively recently. The best and the richest land almost always remained cultivated. But we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that the plague hit marginal lands more severely than the best farmland. The land remained cultivated, but not necessarily by the same people. When the original inhabitants died, survivors from less fertile land moved in, increasing their income by taking over land that yielded larger crops than the land that they tilled before the plague. In Scania, with its rich and fertile land, only approximately 10% of the land was abandoned after the plague, even though we can assume that a significantly higher proportion of the population perished. Actually, the fact that 10% of the good land remained abandoned indicates that the mortality was so widespread that there weren't enough survivors to even keep the best lands under cultivation. It's also worth noting that half of the farms in Scania that were abandoned belonged to the nobility, and we'll get back to the economic consequences of that trend toward the end of this episode. Based on geography, we can reasonably assume that Sweden, situated to the north of Denmark and east of Norway, was reached by the plague later than the two other Scandinavian kingdoms. We even have a written source indicating as much. The oldest surviving document referring to the plague in Sweden is from 1349, and it was issued by King Magnus Eriksson, you know, King of Sweden and Norway, as well as various other bits and pieces. He wrote to the inhabitants of the Diocese of Linköping after he'd received news that the plague had reached Norway. The king now feared that Sweden would be next. To stop the plague, no doubt a divine punishment for humanity's many sins, the king asked his subjects, old, young, women, men, priests and laymen, to walk barefoot to church every Friday, and there they should hear mass and donate a coin, or whatever they could spare. These donations should then be distributed directly among the poor and needy, meaning that nothing should go to the priest, as was customary. Also, people should only consume water and bread on Fridays, 
Not even fish was allowed. People should go to confession to cleanse themselves of all their sins. And finally, they should all give one Swedish penny to the church. The king and the council of the realm would later decide what to do with all this money that could honor God and the Virgin Mary in an appropriately placating manner to make the plague go away. St. Bridget, back then only Bridget, whom we talked about last time, was about to set out for Rome in 1350. But before she did, she had a few things to say about the plague. Because of course she did. The Virgin Mary came to Bridget in a vision and explained that the plague afflicted the Swedes because of their arrogance, immodesty, and greed. She, the Virgin that is, prescribed modest clothing, both in terms of sex appeal and price, giving of alms, and that all parish priests say a mass monthly for the Trinity. The whole congregation needs to be present, and they need to fast and go to confession before Mass. Both the king and Bridget explained the plague as a punishment from heaven, and they weren't the only ones, since this wasn't a particularly original theory in the pious 14th century. But it wasn't the only theory. Some people instead blamed the catastrophic disease on nefarious forces here on Earth. In Visby, the main city on the island of Gotland, nine men were arrested in the spring or early summer of 1350, suspected of causing the outbreak of the plague by mass poisoning. After <clears throat> thorough interrogation, one man confessed to the crime of poisoning the wells in Stockholm, Vesteros, and Arboga, and several other places he had passed through in Sweden. Two other suspects were priests, who were accused of having poisoned a cloth that would touch the lips of worshippers during mass. Eventually, the accused were made to confess and executed. Similar stories explaining the plague with poisoning were known from Germany, and it's perhaps no coincidence that such a case appeared in Visby of all places, since the city was connected to the Hanseatic League. In Germany, the accused were often Jews, or it was claimed that they had at least purchased the poison from Jews. It was a widespread medieval anti-Semitic myth that the Jews were out to destroy Christendom, and epidemics were habitually explained by Jews poisoning wells. But since there was no Jewish community in Sweden in the Middle Ages, other scapegoats had to do when explaining the outbreak of the plague there. There were also alternative theories for how to protect yourself from the plague if fasting, walking barefoot to church, and donating money wasn't your thing. A tradition of signs of imminent return of the plague developed in Sweden. For instance, you could expect the plague to return if there were a few mushrooms or grasshoppers, but plenty of flies and moles around. In several parts of the country, people also believed that the plague would color a piece of pork black if the meat was hung outdoors. This was not only an indication of the presence of plague, but some even treated it as a protective measure, thinking you could attract the plague with pork and uh, then stop it from attacking people. A bit like flypaper. Another tradition claimed that the plague couldn't cross running water, so to spread it would call out for help to be carried over the water. If you assisted, you'd either be spared death or at least be given an easy passing. But if you didn't help, you'd better pray that the plague didn't find some other sucker willing to help it across, because if it did, you'd be at the top of its hit list. Just like everywhere else, we don't know exactly how many people in Sweden perished in the plague. Sweden's last Catholic archbishop in the first half of the 16th century claimed two-thirds of the population died, 
but his figures are probably not particularly reliable. Nonetheless, the mortality must have been considerable. An echo of this cataclysmic event can be found in the number of folk tales describing almost complete devastation that were told and retold from generation to generation after the plague. According to one such legend from a place called Pashnes on the island of Erland, situated southwest of Gotland, the whole surviving population fit on top of a square-shaped stone. Another legend, told in the hamlet of Norberg, claimed that all inhabitants died, except a boy in a cradle who survived because a woman from a neighboring village took, in, took him in. Another version from Vreta claimed that the only survivor in the village, a woman, stood on a rock and blew her shepherd's horn, and in a far-off farm a sole surviving man heard the horn and banged on a bucket in response. The two then met up and repopulated the area. There are several other such stories. They're obviously not true, but they do reflect a vague popular memory of a disaster of enormous proportions. The effects of the plague in Sweden were almost certainly not as bad as the folk tales or that last archbishop would have us believe, but they were probably worse than the conservative estimates made by Swedish scholars. When trying to estimate how many people died in the plague, these cautious historians and archaeologists have looked at the number of farms that they can prove existed before the plague that had disappeared after the pandemic had passed. On the whole, only 15-20% to 20% of Swedish farms were abandoned, which would suggest a much lower mortality rate here than across the border in Denmark. But since the book Kikpim wasn't perfect in the 14th century, and far from all the records that did exist have survived, it stands to reason that they probably missed a few abandoned farms. Just like in Denmark, the abandonment of farms isn't uniform throughout the country. Some specific areas have significantly higher numbers of abandoned farms, especially on the margins and where the land was least fertile. The settlement expansion northward along the Gulf of Bosnia also stopped and wouldn't resume for several generations. Another indication of high mortality rate is that even the best land lost roughly half its value as can be seen from sales agreements from the second half of the 14th century. In addition, Swedish authorities also implemented a program of importing manpower from Finland, settling farms where the tenants had died with new people in order to secure the rents and tax incomes from the land. This would probably not have been done if the drop in the population hadn't been significant. Speaking of Finland, we have no clear indication of the effects of the plague among the Finns. Some have taken this to mean that the plague didn't actually reach Finland at all. Perhaps the eastern shores of the Gulf of Botnia were less affected, but it seems extremely unlikely, however, that Finland remained completely untouched by the plague. Since all of Sweden was affected, and there were frequent connections in both directions across the Sea of Botnia, by this time it stretches credulity beyond its breaking point to believe that the plague didn't make an appearance in Finland. Even We accept that the complete lack of written sources indicates that Finland was less affected than Sweden. We do know of abandonment of farms in Finland proper during this time, a telltale sign of the plague. Another indication of plague is the existence of folktales describing the devastation, similar to the ones I mentioned from Sweden. Again, these are not to be taken as historical sources of literal events, 
but indications of a residual collective memory. One such tale relates that in Espoo, just west of Helsinki in Nyland, only a girl and a monk survived. When the monk eventually also died, the girl rang the church bell for the monk's soul. A boy, also believing that he was the sole survivor, heard the bell and came to the church. As I'm sure you've already guessed, this boy and girl then went on to repopulate Espoo. Turning west now, in many ways Norway is the most interesting country when talking about the plague in Scandinavia. Not necessarily because of the plague itself, but because there's actually a bit of scholarly debate, or dare I say controversy, surrounding the plague and its effects in Norway. Norway is the Scandinavian country where we have the best written sources describing the effects of the plague. This is mainly due to a number of Icelanders who happened to be in Norway at the time, and who would later write down their experiences. Several of these experiences include frantically trying to return to Iceland, but not being able to because their ship crews had died and there weren't enough survivors around to make a ship for the return to Iceland. In that context, it's perhaps ironic that Iceland itself remained untouched by the mid-14th century plague that caused so much death in the rest of Europe. We can't know for sure why the Icelanders were spared this particular epidemic. Maybe it was because of Iceland's remote location. The journey across the North Atlantic took too long, so if anyone on board a ship had the plague when, the set, when they set off from Norway or England or wherever they came from, the whole crew would get infected and die before they reached their destination. None of these ships reached Icelandic waters, but either sank or drifted off in some other direction, saving the island from the plague. At least this time. But eventually, the luck of the Icelanders would run out. In later waves of the plague, in 1402, and then again in 1494, the disease did reach Iceland on ships from the continent, causing many deaths. Anyway, back to Norway. According to the traditional telling of the story, the plague reached Norway through its main port, Bergen, on the west coast. A cog from England sailed into the harbour in early August 1349. At first, things seemed normal enough as the crew offloaded the cargo, chatting with the locals. But then, the people on board started to die, one after the other. In the end, they all died. When people came in contact with a cargo from this ship of death, they got sick and died too. Most people who fell ill only lived a day or two, suffering greatly, coughing up blood and with black spots and boils on their body. The plague ship was left in Bergen Harbour and eventually sank there because no one wanted to touch it anymore. As I said, this is the traditional account of how and when the plague reached Norway. And it makes a lot of sense that Bergen would be the point of entry for this deadly pandemic. After all, Bergen was the first port of call, not only for Icelanders, but also for most ships arriving from England or any of the islands in the North Atlantic that were under Norwegian control, such as the Shetland, Orkney, Hebrides and Faroe Islands, places the plague had already reached before Bergen was hit in August 1349. But the tradition is based on the written evidence more than studies of material remains. Most written sources speak of Bergen and Western Norway because that's where the Icelanders whose accounts we rely on were located. But people in Bergen didn't necessarily know what was happening in other parts of Norway, 
especially in the east around the Oslo Fjord. And if they did, they apparently didn't share that knowledge with the Icelanders who were hanging around. There are signs that the plague had already made inroads into the southeast long before that cog of death approached Bergen in August. The city of Oslo may have been struck by the plague already in the spring or early summer 1349, say May or June at the latest. The theory that the plague reached Oslo before Bergen remains unproven, but there are some indications pointing in that direction. For instance, the Bishop of Hamar, north of Oslo, died from the plague and his replacement was consecrated even before the Archbishop of Nidaros, that is Trondheim, died on October 17, 1349. That makes it very unlikely that the plague reached Hamar from Bergen and not Oslo in the south, since traversing the mountainous terrain of central Norway was a time-consuming hassle in the Middle Ages, whereas Trondheim was only a quick, hassle-free boat ride up the coast. Anyway, we don't know for sure where in Norway the plague hit first, and in the end maybe it doesn't matter all that much. We do know that the disease advanced rapidly along the coast, radiating out from Bergen and Oslo. But the progress was considerably slower inland, once again indicating that people preferred to move on water in those pre-mechanized days. But the plague did eventually reach virtually every nook and cranny in Norway, until it eventually wound down sometime in the early months of 1350. Looking at the effects of the plague in Norway, we see a pattern that's familiar by now. On the face of it, the worst hit regions were the poorer areas inland, where the land was less fertile and so less profitable. Here, incomes from the land fell to only 45% of their level in the 1340s. Just like in Denmark and Sweden, this wasn't necessarily because people died more here than along the coast, but because survivors now could choose to move to the richer coastal areas where better land had been left vacant after the plague, leaving the poorer inland farms abandoned longer. This increased the already existing imbalance where the coastal regions were rich and populated and the inland regions were poor and sparsely populated. We can also see that the Sami population who wasn't dependent on agriculture from fixed farms, expanded into, or perhaps returned to, some areas left depopulated after the plague. These areas had been on the way to become incorporated into the Norwegian economy before 1350, but now it would take several generations for that to happen. In some marginal regions, the population didn't reach its pre-plague levels until the 17th or even 18th century, so three to four hundred years later. During the High Middle Ages, before the plague, there had been an estimated 36,500 farms in Norway, but in 1520 that number was still only 16,000. A large farm contained several households, so counting households, the number were down from approximately 60,000 to 24,000. It's more than half, 170 years later. In fact, the Norwegian population continued to decline until the middle of the 15th century, so for about a century after the plague hit. It would take 300 years for Norway's population to reach its pre-plague levels again. Not to give too much away, but Norway's going into a bit of a slump for the next few hundred years. It's going to get pretty bad. So bad, in fact, that Norway will lose its independence. Some scholars have liked to blame this crisis on the plague. The argument goes like this. 
Norway was weakened by the plague, especially functionaries of the crown who travelled through the country were struck and died to a high degree. When so many bureaucrats died, the royal administration broke down. In effect, the state ceased to function. The survivors had to focus their efforts on the population centres in the south and the west, and the people in the north and inland were left to fend for themselves. Financially, Norway suffered, and the country could not stop foreign interests from taking control, especially the Hanseatic League, which moved in and took control over Bergen after 1350. We'll talk more about that uh, in an episode soon. That way, the already weakened Norwegian crown lost its control of the economically crucial fishing market. The church was also undermined by the plague. Four of five bishops died within a few months. Only the Bishop of Oslo survived, and in Trondheim almost the whole chapter perished. In 1371 the Archbishop wrote to the Pope, letting him know that in the northern Norwegian diocese there were only 40 priests left, whereas before the plague there had been some 300. So the key institutions running the state, the royal bureaucracy and the church, were weakened and the crown's finances were undermined when the league moved in. The small surviving population and small remaining income couldn't support a local Norwegian nobility that was crucial to running the state anymore. As a result, the Norwegians couldn't fend off the Swedes and the Danes when they, spoiler alert, started to fight for political control over Norway. But even though it's true that the Hanseatic League did catch the Norwegian economy in a stranglehold, and Norway did eventually lose its independence, was it really all because of the plague? Maybe it would have happened anyway. Perhaps Norway was so small and weak relative to Denmark and Sweden that it was bound to succumb to its stronger neighbours sooner or later, plague or no plague. Norway's population was only about a third or half that of Denmark, and despite being a vastly larger country, it had much less farmland. If you look at politics as a numbers game, the odds were stacked against the Norwegians even without the plague. In addition, there is some debate about the number of Norwegians who perished in the plague in 1349-1350. Norwegian scholars have estimated about half of the Norwegian farms were abandoned as a result of the plague, and that in many areas, two-thirds of the population died. That would mean that Norway would have been the worst affected in Scandinavia, in all of Europe in fact. But some scholars in other countries are sceptical of the Norwegian figures, not least because the difference between Norway and the other Scandinavian countries is so dramatic. They ask why Norway was so massively affected, or indeed, if. At least a part of the difference in the numbers can probably be put down to how the dead are counted. Danish and Swedish scholars have been looking at confirmed farms that were abandoned at the time of the plague, thereby focusing on a minimum. In Norway, the trend has been to try to estimate the potential number of pre-plague farms, thus focusing on the maximum. That maximum, based on evidence, estimates and guesses, was was then compared to the records from the early 16th century, when the bureaucracy was better and covered all of Norway in a more satisfactory manner. Based on that comparison, it does indeed look like the plague claimed the lives of two-thirds of the Norwegians. Swedish and Danish scholars have doubted these Norwegian estimates, thinking they may contain some error. To illustrate that point, Swedish scholars have applied their own method to the Norwegian county of Renneby in southern Trendelag, 
where the accepted Norwegian estimates said that approximately 70% of the farms were abandoned. The Swedes, using their more conservative estimates, reached 46.3%. So there's a big difference, bringing the Norwegian numbers down to Danish and Swedish levels. But it's still an enormous crisis. Even relying on the lower numbers, almost half of the population died. And maybe that was enough to break Norway. The country was less populous and weaker than the other Scandinavian neighbors. So perhaps the same devastation that Danes and Swedes could recover from was enough to send the Norwegians over the edge, mortally wounding their state, while the Danish and Swedish vultures were circling above. I guess we'll never know what would have happened if it hadn't been for the plague. Maybe Norway would have remained a thriving independent kingdom. Maybe not. What we do know for certain is that the plague in the mid-14th century was by far the worst disaster to strike Scandinavia in recorded history. Worse than any war, famine, or any natural disaster. Everyone was affected, rich and poor, city dwellers and farmers, noblemen and peasants. It caused a demographic and agrarian crisis that lasted for the rest of the Middle Ages. And the results could be seen for hundreds of years in terms of abandoned farms and depleted populations. On a personal level, this was no doubt a catastrophe for everyone involved. But if we take a step back and apply the macro perspective, we can see a pattern emerging of winners and losers. The clearest winners were the members of the upper crust of the aristocracy, a handful of rich families in southern Scandinavia who established vast empires on both sides of the Danish-Swedish border by snatching up land at rock-bottom prices in the wake of the plague. Sometimes, they had to wait for the investment to pay off, since land could remain virtually worthless for decades due to lack of people to cultivate it. But since land was the basis for the economy, its value inevitably rose again, making families like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, known from Hamlet, rich and powerful beyond anything they could have dreamed about before the plague. But the plague was actually good for people at the other end of the social pecking order as well. Many peasants also saw their lot improved when their numbers were depleted. All of a sudden, there was a lack of manpower and noble families, ecclesiastical institutions, and even the crown could no longer treat their tenants, farmers, as they pleased, forcing them to perform free labor or to pay whatever rent demanded by their landlord. Now there was vacant farmland to be had almost everywhere. And if you weren't happy with your current living situation, you could improve it by moving. It should be noted, though, that in Denmark, this was most likely only a temporary effect. With time, the strong Danish nobility reasserted its power over the peasantry. The peasants whose lives improved the most were those who owned land. The distinction between landowning farmers and tenant farmers was probably sharpened as a result of the plague. If you were a landowning farmer in post-plague Scandinavia, you were in a relatively good position. The position of these farmers who owned their own land and who paid taxes to the crown grew stronger against a weakened state. In Sweden, this strengthened position for the landowning farmer class translated into a place in the Swedish diet. Most parliament in Europe had three estates, aristocrats, clergy, and the rest. But Sweden had four, aristocrats, clergy, burghers, and farmers. This gave Swedish farmers a relatively strong political position compared to farmers in almost every other country in Europe including other parts of Scandinavia. So, 
Who were the losers then? Well, the most obvious losers were the lower nobility. They owed far less land than the wealthier upper nobility, and so they were harder hit when the incomes from rent and the value of their land fell in the wake of the plague. Their incomes collapsed, and the price for labor increased, eradicating their profit margins. To compensate for their lost income, they tried to squeeze out as much as they could from renters who had survived, but this almost often proved impossible. As noted, it could also backfire when peasants who were unhappy with rents, fees, and forced labor just upped the stakes and settled on vacant land. As a result, the lower nobility were almost wiped out as a class because the survivors lost their income needed to uphold the lifestyle that distinguished them from well-to-do landowning farmers. This is especially notable in Norway. The Norwegian nobility was weak to begin with, and this was the last blow for many of the Norwegian aristocratic families. This hasn't been the most cheerful of episodes. I wish I could tell you that things will improve next time, but that would be a lie. Instead, we'll continue the doom and gloom theme by taking a closer look at a part of the Scandinavian world that I didn't mention today. Greenland. As far as we know, Greenland remained untouched by the Black Death, but, as you will see next time, that doesn't mean that all was well on the world's largest island. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. A link to the webshop can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.